Good morning. Great to welcome new members in. Those who come into membership, one of the, one of the things that is expected of members is they have been baptized. And Caleb is actually getting baptized in two weeks on Easter Sunday. Uh, if anybody else hasn't been baptized and you'd like to talk about being baptized and even perhaps being baptized on Easter Sunday, do grab one of us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that great moment to declare faith in Jesus Christ. Right, uh, a couple of weeks ago, those of you here, I was speaking on the subject of shame and um, talked about our dog, Goose, the uh, best dog in the world. Look at the muscles on that dog! <laughs> and the, the deep shame of him not coming back and spending hours in the park trying to capture him. And I said that we had healed him, and I promised I would tell you how we, how we did it. Here it was, a collar which beeps. Did that once, and he was fixed. It was almost, well, a miracle. Literally, that was it. Did that once, and it was like a circuit in his brain was transformed. And, and he's been fine ever since. Most extraordinary thing I've ever had. There you go, Becky might want to use that with Carlos. <laughs> Look, Goose, Goose wouldn't consent, just a beep of a collar, and now he does consent. Now, a dog that will consent, a dog doing what you want to do is one thing, but what about human consent? That's the uh, theme of this morning's message about consent. We human beings, we are social animals. We're constantly having to interact with other people, and so there's a constant question for us as to what things we will consent to and what things we will refuse to. And even coming here this morning, there will have been a whole number of consents which you would have gone through without even thinking about it. So you, if you drove up, you would have probably stopped at a red light. You'd have consented to do that. When you came in, you might have opened the door and let somebody go in front of you. There's all kinds of different consents that we're constantly giving. And if we didn't do that, chaos would reign. But we have this powerful sense of the rights of the individual. We have this deep sense that consent is something which should be given, not something which should be demanded. We've just gone through the third anniversary of uh, the first lockdown being imposed, and of course a lot of the discussion around that was what would the population consent to in terms of restrictions being imposed. And one of the actually extraordinary things was how much we did all consent to the restrictions that were placed upon us. Uh, but we constantly are being asked to give our consent for stuff. This past week I had to fill in a form for Felicity to go to a uh, year 13 prom. Do you consent for her to uh, attend? And I thought, well, she's 18, she can do what she likes. But I had to tick the con consent box. And I got a new phone last week, and there's all the stuff you have to go through, which you don't read, but there's a box. You have to say, do you consent? And you've really got no idea what it is you're signing up for. But you give your consent for Apple to own you and know everything about you. I give my permission to do this. And this, this sense that we have the right to consent to what we want to happen to us is absolutely central to our sense of who we are, central to our way of life. We know this is one of the defining characteristics of our kind of society, that in a dictatorship, you don't get to consent. In a dictatorship, you are told exactly what to do, limits placed upon you. In our kind of society, our expectation is that we are the ones who give the consent. You can only take this from me, you can only demand this of me, if I say it's okay, if I consent to give it to you. It's a very profound thing for us in our culture. 
But we need to see that actually what we take for granted is really a fruit of Christianity, that our whole understanding, our whole notion of consent is grounded in Christianity because at the heart of the Christian faith is a saviour who himself consented. See what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children, that's us human beings, have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's an amazing, amazing couple of verses. What it's saying is that Jesus consented to share in our humanity. He agreed to it. He embraced it so that we might know freedom. He consented even to die in order that the power of death over us might be broken. That's the amazing gospel story. That's the Easter proclamation that death has been defeated by the death of Christ. Christ consented to share our humanity, to die in our place, that we might live. That is the Christian faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, there's a, an old theological term for this, for what Jesus did, Jesus consenting to take on flesh and blood, sharing our humanity. It's this term, the condescension of Christ. The condescension of Christ. Not con- condensation, it's not damp walls, misses up windows, condescension of Christ. Now, in our modern usage, to be condescending, we see something very negative. You are very condescending towards me. That's a negative thing. But the original meaning is different. It comes from the old French word condescender. How's that pronunciation, Becky? Was it all right? I've been doing Duolingo. Condescender, which means to agree, to consent, give in, yield, come down from one's rights or claims, the act of voluntarily stooping or inclining to inequality with an inferior. The condensation of Christ. That's what Jesus did. He condescended to stoop down. He agreed, he consented to come down from his place of majesty. He stooped down into our humanity. He condescended to us in order that we might find life in him. Christ shared in our humanity. He shared in our death in order to break the power of death. Christ's act of condescension, his act of consent was our liberation. Amazing. And that liberation is is the ground from which all our ideas of consent have sprung. Our understanding that we're free people, that if anything's going to happen to us, we need to give our consent to it. The reason that we live in free societies rather than in dictatorships comes ultimately from what Christ did for us, his condescending, his consent, his coming down to us. And so we, we know, we just feel intuitively that actions which happen to us without our consent are abusive. If somebody does something to us which we haven't consented to, that is an abusive act. And we're especially alert to this when it comes to sex. Recently in the news there was the case of Stephen Bear and Georgia Harrison and uh, the revenge porn case. I don't know who these people are, but they were in the news a lot, and it's an example of consent. I mean, that is a face you want to slap, isn't it? The, that, that whoever he is, that reality TV personality, that's a face that needs a slap. And he got 21 months in jail for, 
putting up revenge porn, a video of, of, that she didn't want people to see. Uh, got lots of attention. It was a question about consent. Or think about a few years ago when uh, all the news about Harvey Weinstein, the, the, the Hollywood mogul blew up and the Me Too movement was born. This great sense of he was doing things and people like him, men like him, were doing things without consent. And that is wrong. That's not how it should be. And it spawned a huge global movement in terms of this is not acceptable. We, you cannot act without consent in this way. To do so is abusive. Or, or think, of course, the most profound example, the abuse of children. A terrible thing. Now, we feel an instinctive revulsion about this, don't we? We, we just know, we just know that it's wrong when someone acts like this without consent. Now, whatever the case might be with reality TV stars, we just know that Stephen Bear did the wrong thing. We just know it's wrong. We just know that Harvey Weinstein did the wrong thing. We just know that if somebody abuses a child, it is wrong. We don't have to debate it. We don't have to argue about it. We don't have to qualify it. We just know that it's wrong because consent was not given. It's the air that we breathe. But actually, that comes directly from Christianity, because without Christianity, those things aren't obvious at all. Let me give you an example from a book we've been using this series, Glenn Scribner's book, The Air, the Air We Breathe. He says this, If you asked a Roman how much is a little girl worth, they might have offered a number of answers. She's free if you manage to salvage her as a baby from the rubbish heap when she was exposed. If slave traders got to her first, then you'd have to pay them perhaps eight months' wages to own her. Once yours, though, her body belongs to you outright. It is accepted that every master is entitled to use his, his slave as he desires. If, though, you wanted a girl purely on a pay-as-you-go basis, prostitution was, in the words of historian Carl Harper, a dominant institution flourishing in the light of day. The sex industry was integral to the moral economy of the classical world. A quick visit to the nearest brothel, and they were everywhere, would set you back the price of a loaf of bread." So, how much is a little girl worth? We answer everything. Others in history would laugh at us all the way to the brothel. Why the difference, in a word, Christianity? That is a difference. Without Christianity, without the value that Christianity assigns to every individual, the Genesis 1.27 promise we've looked at a lot these last few weeks, God made us in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. Without that sense of being made in the image of God, there would be no sense. There isn't just a natural sense that everybody, everybody is precious. Without that, we wouldn't have our concept of consent. Without that, of course, those who are stronger have a right to abuse the weaker. And it's not even abuse. It's just the natural order of things. In that kind of world, in a Roman kind of world, in a pre-Christian kind of world, you wouldn't care what Harvey Weinstein did. It would actually seem natural, right, even moral. Because in that kind of world, the most powerful, richest men had a right to the bodies of those who were beneath them. No question asked. That was morally seen as right. There just wasn't the same understanding of consent as we have. Imagine living in that kind of world. How much is a little girl worth? Imagine living in that kind of world. If you were one of those rich and powerful men, that might look an attractive world to live in. But for everybody else, not so much. 
How much is a little girl worth? And so we need to see that consent is not enough. Consent is not enough. In this series, what we've been trying to do, or partly of what we've been trying to do, is to identify the distortions in our culture, showing how so much of what our culture values has its origins in Christianity, but the way that that is received and practiced in our society is now very distorted and confused. And, and the notion of consent is, a, is a, a sort of cultural shibboleth for us. It's something that you have to sign up for. And, and so the way that our culture works now is that as so long as there is consent, you can do what you like. As long as somebody's ticked the box, given consent, then you can do what you like. But Christianity says, no, that's not quite how it works. That's not quite how it works. That's not really good enough. The way that our society thinks, certainly about issues of sexuality, is that who you do or don't have sex with is just a personal matter. But what we as Christians recognize is it's not just a personal matter. It has implications for society at large. The sexual revolution of the 1960s taught us that you could have sex with whoever you want to have sex with so long as it's consensual. Harvey Weinstein can't have sex with all those women because he was being abusive. He didn't have consent. But if he'd had consent, it would have been fine, is what our culture teaches. The trouble is that consent is very hard to police. And that's why in the UK at the moment, only 2% of rape charges actually go to trial. Only 2% make it to trial. Why? Because how do you police consent? She said, yes. I didn't say yes. Whose word is it? Consent is a very slippery thing. And so we keep seeing again. Again, it always pops up in our news stories of, I thought that we had consent. You didn't have consent. What's happening? Questions of abuse, consent, all the mess that we live in. In a, in a moral free-for-all, consent is the best that we can hope for. But it's really not very good. It's not the best foundation for human flourishing. And of course, the reality is as well that we can consent to things which are harmful. You can give your consent to stuff which actually is going to do you harm. Consent in itself isn't enough. And what Christianity does is to offer us a better way. We are heirs in our culture of the 60s sexual revolution, the introduction of the pill and transformation of sexual behavior. But it was Christianity that introduced the first sexual revolution. And that sexual revolution was to say that sex should only happen within monogamous marriage. That is the only legitimate, the only righteous, the only moral place for sex to happen within monogamous marriage. And we still have the legacy of that in our society to this day. We still see mon monogamy as normal. Even in our world where lots of people sleep with lots of people, we still see monogamy as kind of normal. And there's still this sort of echo still of expectations around that in terms of not, not meaning to be unfaithful to whoever you're with at the time. And this concept of still marriage being generally something which is something to uh, people see as a good thing and, and aspire to. But actually monogamy itself is not normal in human behavior. The, the, the normal pattern of behavior in these things is not monogamy. It's for the more powerful men in society to have multiple wives. That's how most cultures outside Christianity operate. Powerful men have multiple wives rather than monogamous marriage. 
The first sexual revolution, the Christian sexual revolution, changed that. Said that you should only be married to one person, and you should stay married to that one person. And that had all kinds of huge social impacts. It didn't just affect people personally, it affected the whole of society, affected the whole of culture. It meant that, meant that men no longer, powerful men could no longer just take women. They didn't have the right just to take whichever women they wanted. And we see that in examples of history. Think about Henry VIII, the great historical archetype of a monstrous man wanting many women. But even for him as the king of England, he couldn't just take as many wives as he wanted. He had to jump through all kinds of hoops. He had to break the whole legal and religious system of his country in order to be able to marry the women he wanted to marry because Christianity had so fundamentally changed the dynamics. In, in a, in a non-Christian culture, Henry VIII could have taken as many wives as he wanted and nobody would have cared. Christianity changed everything. And this demand of Christianity that sex should only happen within monogamous marriage, it, it changed so many practical things. It meant, one thing is it meant that many more men actually got married. Because do the math, if you live in a culture where the powerful men take more wives, that means there are less women around, available for other men. And that means that the men lower down the social hierarchy tend not to get married because there aren't any women for them to get married. And that doesn't just affect them, that affects the whole of society because unmarried men are more dangerous than married men often, more likely to commit crime. Uh, marriage and caring for kids, and this might be a bit sobering for those of us who are married and have kids, Getting married and having kids actually lowers your testosterone levels. has a biological impact upon men. And in societies where there is an imbalance, where there's a whole crowd of men who are unable to get married because the more powerful, richer men have taken all the women, that has an impact upon the safety of society. We see that at the moment in China. China had this terrible one-child policy, which they've finally abandoned because it's a demographic nightmare for them now. But this one-child policy, and because in Chinese culture, boys were more valued than girls, girls would often be aborted or exposed, left to die after they were born. And so now there are millions more young men in China than there are young women. And when you have millions more young men than you have young women, that means there aren't partners for all those millions of young men. And there is a direct correlation in terms of crime in China now. That as the numbers of those young men who can't get married has grown, the levels of crime have increased. Why? Because actually marriage is civilizing for men. Monogamous marriage especially is civilizing for men. And so it was monogamous marriage which was the first step to meaningful equality. Last week Richard was teaching about equality. The first step to meaningful equality in our society was the Christian sexual revolution which said that sex should only happen in monogamous marriage. It brought equality between men. It meant that the king was only meant to have one wife, and the peasant in his hovel was only meant to have one wife, but they could both have a wife. Brought equality between men. It also was the first step in equality between men and women. Because men were expected to act with the same sexual restraint as women historically had been, and women were given rights and protections which they previously had been denied. Monogamous marriage was good news for women. Monogamous marriage is the first step in equality between men and women. Without monogamous marriage, without the Christian revolution, there wouldn't be equality between men and women. In the Roman world, there was not equality between men and women. The man could do what he liked. 
Christianity changed everything. Joseph Heinrich, in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, expresses this graphically. The church, through the institution of monogamous marriage, reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. It's not a phrase you'd expect here in church. <laughs> we talked about circumcision. We talked about all kinds of stuff the last few weeks. The church, through the institution of monogamous marriage, reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. And this made the world a better place. It made the world more equal. And it made the world safer. And it made the world more prosperous. Why do we have prosperity in our context? Why are we a safe, generally, society? Why do we value equality? It all stems, all roots back in the Christian revolution in these things. Now, our contemporary notion of consent is not nearly so good as that. It is, our notion of consent, is, it is like that agreement on my new phone, which, of course, unless you're some extraordinary geeky reader, lawyer, nobody's ever going to read. You just tick the consent box with no idea really what you are signing away in terms of your data and the rest. The, the, the first sexual revolution, the Christian sexual revolution, produced much better results for individuals and for society than the 1960s sexual revolution has. Now, the, the aim of this series, what we've been doing the, these five weeks, what we've been trying to do is, is to help us to see how Christianity is the air that we breathe. The reason that we have the values we do in our culture is because of Christianity. To see, help us to be equipped to answer the hard questions that are being asked in our culture. There's all kinds of difficult questions being asked at the moment, and we've been trying to equip you to do, answer those questions better. And, and also, we've been trying to demonstrate, to show how the answers provided by Christianity are more satisfying, how they connect with our hearts better than the answers given by our culture at the moment. And Christianity has a better message when it comes to the theme of consent, because the Christian message is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who consented to stoop down to us. Think again about the, the origins of that word, condescend. Jesus condescended. He came down from his place, his high place. He, he agreed, he consented to stoop down into our humanity in order to rescue us from the curse of death. And so Jesus is for us. He's the model of human flourishing. How are humans going to flourish? How are we individually and how are we as a society going to flourish? It is by finding ourselves in Christ, by seeing him as the great example and the great saviour. It's in him that things are going to be made better, not through the lies of what our culture has sold us over the last decades. Philippians 2, this is a passage we've looked at a few times the last few weeks. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we see is that Jesus consented. He consented to assume our humanity 
And he did that not in the pursuit of personal gratification. Christ's consent, his, his stooping down was in the nature of a servant. Jesus was humble. Jesus was obedient. Jesus consented to sacrifice. Jesus even consented to the cross. It was his stooping down into our humanity which enables us to be scooped up into the life of God. The servant-like nature of Christ. What he consented to gladly. What he freely, willingly gave. Making himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, stooping down to us so that we could be scooped up into the presence of God. Amazing. And we are called to image Christ in this. We're called to reflect Christ in this. See what it says. It's how the the passage starts. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus in this. How are you to conduct yourself in relationship with other people? Be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? He was the one who took on the form of a servant. He's the one who stooped down in order to lift us up. What kind of attitude, what kind of mindset do we have to have towards others? The mindset which is like Christ's, the posture of a servant. And that is much better than our current model of consent. The way our society works at the moment is you can do it as long as there's consent has been given. The Christ-like model is stoop down like a servant in order to bless and lift others up. The the trouble with our, our model of consent is that ultimately it's just another dimension of consumerism. That's what it is, our our model of consent. It's just about being a consumer. And if you Tick the consent box, well, then you can consume. You can consume this product, product, or you can consume this person. And that's fine, because the consent box has been ticked. It's about commodification. It's about consumerism. It's a model in which there is no real love, no real faithfulness, no societal good. None of that is required when we tick the consent box. It's just about being a consumer. Everything and everyone, in the end, becomes a commodity in our model of consent. And that is destructive to our humanity. It erodes who we are as people made in the image of God. And so, yes, you might have consented, but does that make you any better in terms of your attitude than the Roman man who would treat a girl just as an object to be consumed? The 21st century model of consent, where we end up with, what we end up with is Love Island, not real love. What we end up with is Stephen Bear and Georgia Harrison going to court because he's posted videos on Pornhub of what they did, supposedly in private. That's what our model of consent ends up with. But seeing ourselves as Christ-like servants changes things. To see ourselves as Christ-like servants means that we prefer other people over ourselves. It means that we dignify other people. It means we see the value in every individual. Actually, what that means is that we end up freeing other people. This is a, this is a better 
model for human flourishing. The Christ-like servant model is a better model for our personal health, satisfaction, happiness than the consumer consent model we live with in our society. Christianity is good news. Christianity tells a better story than our society does. Now, this, this series has, has felt like a fight. We've gone into some deep stuff, and it's not easy in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning to, to, to explore what we've been wanting to explore. It's felt like a spiritual fight. And that's, it has been a fight because we have an enemy who is a liar who only wants to kill and destroy And the lies of this enemy are writ through the fabric of our society now. The lies which say this is a way to freedom. This is a way to fulfillment. This is a way to happiness. And those things are lies. What they end up in the end is not freedom and life and happiness. What they end up with is all kind of mess and pain and heartbreak and sorrow. And what we need to do is to cut through the distortions. What we need to do is cut through the lies, cut through the smoke and the mirrors. What we need to do is turn to Jesus He is the one who condescended to us so that we might know life, that we might know liberty, and that we might know freedom. And if we want to experience those things, we're not going to experience them in the end by just ticking consent forms. The way that we can experience life and liberty and freedom is by turning to the one who gave up the splendors of heaven to stoop down to us in order to scoop us up to God. It's when we live a servant-like life, like him, that we're transformed personally. Our relationships with others are changed, and in the end, the whole of society can be transformed. It's happened before. The first Christian revolution changed, did change, the way that people lived, acted, thought. We need to recover something of that. Those of us who are Christians, we need to, we need to see through the lies, not get caught up in the lies of our culture. We need to be true to Christ And what he's done for us, we need to have the same mindset as Jesus did, who did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but assumed the nature of a servant. That's the message. That's the heartwarming, life-giving message of the gospel of Christianity, that we can be caught up somehow in the nature of Christ. We can be caught up in his mission, that there is good news for our confused, hurting messy, muddled world. And that good news is the person of Jesus who gave his life for us that we might know life in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you are the one who took on the flesh and blood of the children in order that you might break the power of death Thank you that you're the one who made yourself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Lord, as we approach Easter the next couple of weeks, we're reminded again especially of that, this great miracle that the King of Heaven took on human flesh and died in our place. Thank you that you came as a servant. Thank you you showed us a better way. I pray for us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see through the lies that our society tells to cling to the truth. I pray that you would help us to have the same mindset as you, that we would live in a way which serves others rather than just consumes them. Help us, Lord, as a people to show the good news, the better story of Christianity. 
that what you offer us is life, freedom. What you offer us is refuge and hope. I pray that we would demonstrate that. I pray that we as a community would live it out, be faithful to it, show it, prove it to the world, that those who've been damaged, bashed up, beaten by the lies of our culture might find refuge and healing and hope in you. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen.